you can feel free to use this. Oh, thanks. That's a great introduction. All right, so I'm Eric Feiler, my wife Megan, and I'll tell you a little bit of my history. So I was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to a family of seven, five other siblings. Born into a Christian home, um, went to church regularly, Bible, had Bible stories at night with my family. Um, nothing too exciting, just a normal kind of Christian kid's life. Um, we moved when I was six away from like all my cousins and stuff, moved up to the North Country to buy a farm because um, land prices were pretty high in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So um, that was a change for us moving away from family. Um, we found a church in the area, um, again, just going to church regularly, um, enjoyed, you know, making church friends. And one of the spiritual highlights for me was uh, when I started going to beaver camp when I was 11 years old. I, I've always loved the outdoors. I love to hike. I love to basically in the outdoors, boat, hike, camp. I love it. So, and um, Pastor Mike was saying a couple weeks ago how he kind of connects in the outdoors. Like that's his place of peace, and it's a lot for me the same way. Like when I can get alone, and it's great going with people, but sometimes like I just like to be alone and be out there, and that's where I kind of refresh. So, um, camp was really great for me. Always a spiritual highlight, um, and the word of God was taught clearly. And when I was 14, I asked Christ into my life and um, at camp, and kind of that's where I started my journey. Um, knew a lot about the Bible before that, but never made that commitment before then. Um, growing up, though, I think I had, my theology was a little bit twisted, like, growing up. I had, um, I had this kind of stuck in my mind that what you did still, like, weighed into your salvation, and so your actions, I was always, like, playing this game where, like, when I was doing good, I felt all right, and then I mess up, I felt like, oh, oh, I'm not in anymore, you know, and so I kind of had this cloud over me, like, pretty much through high school, I had this cloud over me, um, just always, like, on the fence, you know, like, wondering if I'm in or wondering if I'm not, and um, so that, that was definitely a challenge for me. I had a great childhood and a lot of great memories, played in the outdoors, grew up on a dairy farm, but I think that, you know, that cloud of doubt, like, stole a lot of my joy when I was younger, for sure. Um, when I went to college, uh, I was praying praying that I'd find Christian friends, because in high school, um, at my school, I really didn't have any Christian friends. I had a couple, some really great friends at church, and two of my best friends were homeschooled and grew up in a Christian home, but the actual, at high school, I didn't really have Christian friends, um, and I look back, and it was, I think it was actually a good thing, because it taught me to stand alone, and um, I think it, it grew me a lot in, in just standing on my, standing my grounds, but it was hard, too, so when I was going to college, I was just really praying that I could plug in and find Christian friends. Um, first two weeks, I was a little nervous. I went down, started playing soccer, and definitely didn't find any Christian friends <laughs> those first two weeks. But as other students started to come and trickle in, I, I found some, soon made some great friends and some accountability partners. And one of my friends, my freshman year, like, we talk about spiritual stuff, and he's always challenging me. Like, he just he thought it was crazy that I didn't, I didn't know for sure, you know? And he just kept, he kept challenging me. Um, like, you got to know. Like, if you're a Christian, you got to know you're in. And, like, through that and through a church I was attending, messages I heard, um, like, it was through that year that God worked through those things. And the end of the year, we had a, I took a class, um, a conservation class, soil and water conservation class. And at the end of the class, we went out to Yellowstone National Park for 10 days. So, again, the outdoors is where I recharge and where I can kind of relax and uh, let my mind think. And so, 
I can remember the exact spot where like it all just clicked and like from that point on I was out one morning I was reading had my devotions and like everything just clicked then and so it was it was kind of crazy like the building of a whole year but it was at that point I knew I was I knew I was saved and I knew that my actions weren't weighing into me getting into heaven or not so like at that point it was a big paradigm shift and um I just realized like the joy you can have in Christ and in knowing you're in and that like our actions are just merely like an outflowing an outpouring of like the gratitude uh because of what's been done for us so um college normal college I guess <laughs> studying traveling um going in debt a little bit you know through uh, student loans and everything else but had a good time in college um I was baptized my last year of college at the church I was going to um I got baptized Soon after college, I met Megs. Um, we found a great church, Bible teaching church in northern Pennsylvania, and we're members there. And then we were there like five years. We moved for a job, a better job opportunity to Alfred, New York. Stayed there seven years, found another great Bible teaching church, and moved up here in 2019. And we're really glad to find this church. I'm really excited to be up here in general. <laughs> no. Okay, my upbringing was very boring in the best possible way. My parents are married and have stayed married. I have one brother. We were raised in a middle-class home on a one-acre plot outside the town of Candegua, New York. My mother is a microbiologist and a true introvert, and my father is actually a pastor. So I grew up in a place where Jesus was taught at church, practiced very quietly at home, uh, but not preached at home. Church, Jesus, God, it was very agreeable with me as a child. I accepted it. I loved church and being a part of youth group and things like that. Why wouldn't I? Like many teens, I began to try to figure out who I was in the process. I saw three types of Christians, adult Christians, who I respected. I thought someday I would probably be like that. Um, kids who are following the law of God, and I didn't really want to be around them. <laughs> Then I found some really great friends who I loved being with, um, but they were not believers. And so I chose to be a part of this group. Um, the regrets of those three years, I wish I could rake back over and over again. Not necessarily the friendships, but participating in their behaviors. <laughs> in retrospect, I see that I was chasing fun and belonging. Church seemed very isolated to me on Sundays. I wore clothes that I never wore the rest of the week. I sat quietly. I had to look good. Um, it was very passive. Youth events seemed really orchestrated. A bunch of kids my age were herded together and made to participate in really goofy games and things. And this to me just was not fun. It was very unauthentic, and I wasn't, I wasn't into it. So I began to wrestle with God. That summer before my freshman year of college, my parents started to really um, – confront what was going on with me. They'd occasionally talk to me. Um, they were, gave me the purpose-driven life, and I felt started to feel really conflicted. I would read my Bible on occasion. I'd read this devotional on occasion, and I kind of just filtered out what I wanted. I picked and choose what I wanted to believe. I more or less was trying to be a good person, a really kind person, but not following all the guidelines that God puts in place for our life. So I kept giving Christ pieces of my life, 
and not my whole life. Um, I wasn't living a life I knew Christ wanted for me. I would lie. I would cover things up. I would be one person one place and another person another place. Um, it caused a lot of pain. And I just missed like a true friendship with Jesus. And because of the way I was acting, I missed a lot of true friends in real life too. The summer after my freshman year of college, I knew I couldn't go home. I knew I couldn't be a part of that friend group. Um, and where I was at college wasn't exactly a great place either. So in my struggle, in my prayer, I felt a very clear voice telling me to go back to Beaver Camp. Funny, we connected there. <laughs> we met there as well. But um, I felt just this strong connect. Or As a child growing up, it was my favorite place in the whole world, similar to Eric. I just met kids who were like me, who liked to get dirty, who liked to play games with all their might, like they wanted to win. And then we go sing about Jesus around a campfire, and I couldn't think of anything better. So it just came to me very strongly to go work at Beaver Camp. So I did. Um, it was there um, that all those confessional prayers I had prayed became fully real. It was there that I could really surrender my whole life to Jesus. I think I could fully accept a relationship with Jesus because I had found a friend there who fully accepted me, a friend that showed me that we could have a lot of fun just being who we are and following Jesus. So kind of this meshing up of trying and failing uh, ended there that summer because I found a relationship with Jesus, not just trying to follow rules as the church um, as I had grown up knowing the church. My return to college was different. For the first time in a long time, I began being okay with just who I was because I had a love for Jesus. Campus Crusade for Christ was a, um, and a church helped me to stay really focused. I forged some new Christian friendships and was excited to reach out and invite others to Campus Crusade events. I remember having a mission to show others that being a Christian was the most fun you could ever have, something I had totally missed before. There were still lots of trying, lots of failing, but my guardrails for living were up not for the sake of the law themselves, but because I really loved Jesus, and it changed everything. So from then on, there have been many mountains and many valleys in my faith walk, Many life events, marrying, having four wonderful children. One thing I know is I learn about um, Christ and Jesus, my Savior. He is my friend, and the more I trust him and the more I grow in that relationship, the more peace I have in my life. So we are excited um, after finding some good churches and having made some really good friends who have grown us to find North Country Fellowship Church because we see the relationships here. And for me, that has been what has grown my faith more than anything. Thank you guys very much. <clears throat> I know it's not always the easiest thing to share your story in front of everyone, but we believe it's a very important part of being a family. So we're very excited to welcome you guys into our family. I appreciate you being willing to share your stories. It's just such a great reminder of some simple truths that we live by. Eric, just, you know, the reminder that we are saved by grace through faith, not anything that we do 
time. That's so, so important to realize that. And any doubt of our salvation or any notion that anything we do could separate us from the love of Christ is from the accuser. And that's not, that's not from God. But then that the, you know, the proper response to that grace and that salvation is to surrender your whole life to Christ. But that comes out of the relationship that we have with Jesus. Uh, that's not what saves us. So, yeah, it's a very, very cool reminder of those things. I'm going to pray, and then we'll uh, dismiss the kids to Sunday school. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the gift of family, uh, the blessing to be here together in your name. I just pray for your blessing over the remainder of our time here this morning, and that you would, uh, that your hand would be on Mike as he shares from your word and as we wrap up the book of Nehemiah. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, kids, go ahead and migrate to, oh, Doug has, okay. Yeah, so, and that's a good reminder. It's for kids anywhere from um, grades one through five, right? One through five now. Thank you, Doug. I think I'm on, Jason. Yes, no? I have a green light, so. If you can't hear me, just raise your hand and Jason will turn me up. But if you don't want to hear me, raise both hands and Jason will turn me down. Okay, we'll get that all straightened out. So, super excited to be able to share with you uh, as we wrap up the book of Nehemiah today. Last week, David took us through this renewal of Israel. And we were reminded that Nehemiah was there not just to rebuild a wall, but to rebuild a people. Um, this morning, we're going to wrap up our exile series, not the prophets, but our exile series, by finishing the book of Nehemiah. Um, the Jews were still in exile, and they're still uh, the chosen people of God. And when the word of God was proclaimed among them, revival broke out. There were festivals. There were sacrifices, covenant renewals, repentance. They reestablished corporate worship, and they repopulated the city. And so I kind of want to give us just a quick rundown of some chapters here so that you can kind of mark them. If you want to mark them in your Bibles, what each chapter was, that's cool. Uh, in chapter 9, there's this corporate prayer of, of confession. And hey, listen, we know what God has done, and we know what God expects of us, and as a people group, we've blown it. And so that's chapter 9. Uh, chapter 10, in response to this confession prayer, the people make a vow, a covenant to honor God. And there's some very specific things that they vow to do. And we're going to look at those uh, in just a couple minutes. In chapter 11, the, one of the chapters David refused to read, uh, the people are selected who are going to repopulate Jerusalem. Not everybody who returned from exile was able to live in the city. Some of them went back to their family properties, but they actually had like a lottery system. They let people volunteer, and then they had a lottery system to choose people to repopulate the city. And they're listing all the people there. And then also the Levites were set up to serve in the temple. And in chapter 12, there's the dedication of the wall. Now, the wall was completed a while ago, and it gets to chapter 12, and then this is dedication. And there's not a specific date mentioned for the wall dedication. It could have aligned with events earlier in the book where we read about the wall being completed. It might have actually 
come much later than the rebuilding of the wall just because of logistics. I mean, you had to appoint all these people, the singers and the, the Levites and the priests and everybody who was a part of that dedication. Um, or it could just follow right in line with the renewal and the vows and the dedication could have been the next thing. We don't know. For some reason, Nehemiah just thought the date wasn't important. So he left it out. But what a celebration that was. Um, just to give you a little bit of, of a kind of an idea of what happened in that dedication, the leaders of Israel separated into two groups. And they approached the wall, uh, most believe from the west, and one group went south and one group went north. And Ezra led one group, and Nehemiah followed the other group, and they went on the wall and around the wall and circled up until they connected in the temple area. And there were singers, and there were instruments, and there were people praising God and celebrating the fact that God had allowed them to complete this work, and that God had restored them from exile back to the city, back to be able to worship and to have protection and to be a people once again. So it was the culmination of everything we've been reading about, really, in Ezra and Nehemiah, comes together in this dedication of the temple in chapter 12. At the end of Nehemiah chapter 12, if you want to turn there, we're going to actually be camping in chapter 13 mostly, but the end of chapter 12 of the book of Nehemiah, verse 43, it says this. On that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and children also celebrated, and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. I mean, this is a huge celebration. They heard this. I live up on the hill, kind of a couple miles from here. But every now and then, there's an event that takes place at the high school, and we can hear it. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. You live close enough where you can hear it. You can be miles away and hear it. Well, imagine a celebration with no PA system loud enough that people could hear it from far away. There was a huge celebration, and people standing up on the wall and people down in the city just celebrating what God had done. And on that same day, the support of the Levites and temple worship was officially established, it says. Um, in chapter 12, verse 44, on that same day, men were placed in charge of the rooms that housed the supplies, contributions, first fruits, and tenths. The legally required portions for the priests and Levites were gathered from the village fields because Judah was grateful to the priests and the Levites who were serving. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification along with the singers and the gatekeepers as David and his son Solomon had prescribed. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were heads of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. They also set aside daily portions for the Levites, and the Levites set aside daily portions for Aaron's descendants. They reestablished what was there when David and Solomon were ruling. That's the big glory days of Israel. That's when everything was great. That's when life was good, and it was great to be a Jew. You were one of the greatest kingdoms in the world, and people traveled just to see how great your kingdom was, and they had fallen so far from there because God had punished them for the rebellion and allowed them to go into exile and to be taken away from their land and to have their city and their temple destroyed. And now God has brought them back to the point where the author is reminding us that they're going back to the day, as close as they can to the day of what it was like 
with David and Solomon. That's what they were longing for, to be a people again. This is good news. And as we approach chapter 13, we continue with good news. There's a different mention of time here. Instead of on that day or the same day, we get this phrase, at that time. At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. Now, this could be referring to a specific singular moment at that time. Or the fact that public scripture reading was now a part of their life. At that time, the book of Moses was read. In other words, during that, re- during that time or that season, it was common for them to read the book of Moses. It could be taken that way, or it could be at that specific time, they read the book of Moses. Either way is a pro- is is a possible interpretation. What we don't know is what that time is. What we do know is they were being faithful to read the book of Moses. And when they did, they came across a passage, a passage that gave them some specific instructions. The passage is in Deuteronomy chapter 23. At that time, they read the book of Moses. They came across Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 5, and it says this, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, may enter the Lord's assembly. This is because they did not meet you with food and water on the journey after you came out of Egypt. And because Balaam, son of Baor, of Pethor, in Aram Naharaim, was hired to curse you. Yet the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but he turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. So there's this command that they came across. You cannot have people from outside, foreigners, in the assembly of God. And in Nehemiah 13.3, when they heard the law, they separated all of those of mixed descent from Israel. So there's hope, right? A glimmer of hope after almost being completely annihilated. Not only annihilated through being taken away in exile, but you remember the book of Esther, They almost got annihilated completely there. And now this remnant comes back, and finally, it took them hundreds of years in exile, and finally, they're back on track. They have their city back. They have their temple back. They have their people back. They have their worship back. And they have a renewed relationship with Yahweh. They're getting it right. Don't you love happy endings? One of the movies I really enjoy watching is The Incredibles. How many of you like the movie The Incredibles? I love the interviews in the beginning, and they're interviewing Mr. Incredible, and he's talking about the problem with saving the world. The problem with saving the world is every time you fix it, it gets messed up again. I feel like that's kind of the story here, that it's, it's fixed, but it's maybe not going to stay that way, because historically speaking, that hasn't happened. But let's just pause and enjoy the good moments for a minute here. They're doing what God asked. They're living the way God wanted them to. And on top of that, we can even probably make some really cool conclusions that I've heard people preach on and share, like committed leadership that fears God can make a huge difference in the way people live. Isn't that true? When you have leaders who fear God and trust God and who are willing to live that way in front of you, it can impact the way that you live, and the way the people around you live. And you can draw that conclusion from Nehemiah. Here's what happened when Nehemiah listened to God, prayed to God, and was not willing to jump in and and was willing to jump in and do what God asked him to do. 
the entire nation is turned around now. The walls are rebuilt, and they're living the way God wants. And I think a lot of that has to do with Nehemiah. But what happens when leaders are gone? What happens when no one's looking, when there's no one to keep tabs on things? So, parents, what happens if you just leave the kids and uh, leave the cookies out? Cookies still there when you get back? Some of you are like, no. Some of you are like, yes? Well, yeah, Eden's not up to that yet, you know. What happens when the leadership is gone? It's something we all are concerned about. Historically speaking, for the Jews, it's not been a good thing. For instance, Moses, after getting the people out of Egypt into the wilderness, goes up on the mountain for 40 days to talk to God. And what happens at the bottom of the hill while he's gone? They make a golden calf. Aaron, the high priest, makes a golden calf and says, Israel, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. We, the people are like, we don't know what happened to that Moses guy. He's gone, so we're just going to take things into our own hands. Not a good situation. Um, Saul, I don't know if you remember Saul. He was the first king before David. Saul was, was waiting for Samuel to show up to offer burnt offerings. Samuel was a prophet. And Samuel got delayed. So Saul offered burnt offerings on his own and lost the right for his family to continue leading Israel. When leaders are delayed, when leaders are absent, the history of Israel is that they go back to the way it was and they do things that just doesn't honor God. And if you go back to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, there was a question that the king asked Nehemiah in chapter 2, verse 6. And the question was this. The king with the queen seated beside him asked, how long will your journey take and when will you return? And so I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. So we started out the book knowing that at some point, Nehemiah has to go back. We also went into the book knowing that historically, when the leaders leave, things don't go well. And at some point, Nehemiah has to return. Nehemiah was a temporary leader. He had given the king his word that he would return, and we know something about Nehemiah, and that's that he was a man of his word. That means that all Nehemiah could do was his best to establish the nation, to establish the people, to set up leaders, and then trust that they would follow God. What will happen when the leader is gone? Was the exile enough? Was being ripped away from your home, living in a foreign country, and working so hard to rebuild what was taken from you, is that enough of a lesson? Because that's what God intended the exile to be, was a lesson for the Jews. Was it enough of a lesson to keep the people faithful to God, to live the way they're supposed to? That's the question, one of the questions we're meant to wrestle with through the book of Nehemiah. And our perfect paradise and happy ending is shattered. I know you're not surprised by this. But literally, literally all that was accomplished by Nehemiah is undone. Everything is totally undone. And the narrator of the book is very careful to give you exact details of how everything was completely undone that had been done. We're going to look at those together today. Uh, failure one, 
Here we go. Allowing foreigners, especially Ammonites, into the temple area. The last thing that we read, it was in the beginning of chapter 13, where they came to that passage in Deuteronomy and heard the Ammonites cannot be in this area, and they said, okay, and they got all, they got all of them out of there. Nehemiah disappears, and we read in Nehemiah 13, 6, while all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem, because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. Whoa, time out. Actually, if you go back a couple more verses, you find out exactly what he did. It's kind of a weird order in chapter 13, but chapter 13, verse 4. Now, before this, the priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was a relative of Tobiah and had prepared a large room for him where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tents of grain, new wine, and fresh oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priests. So the, high, the, the priest, sorry, the priest who was responsible for the storerooms creates a hotel room for Tobiah. You remember Tobiah? Tobiah is one of the bad guys. Of all people, it's Tobiah. This is the guy who threatened to kill the workers as they were working on the wall. This is the guy who taunted the workers while they're working on the wall. It's the same guy who said, I'm going to send a letter to the king telling him that you're in rebellion because I've heard such rumors. It's also the guy who paid off and bribed one of the priests to try to get Nehemiah to go into the temple and hide where he wasn't supposed to be so he could discredit him. It's that Tobiah. And guess what? He's an Ammonite. So right after reading Deuteronomy chapter 23 and removing all the Ammonites, we don't know how much time had passed, but it didn't take long. And now all of a sudden, there's not just an Ammonite in the temple of God. He's got a house there in the storerooms. And one of the major reforms that took place has been totally undone. Side note, obviously, Tobiah had a lot of pull. Think about it. He managed to bribe one of the priests to try to coerce Nehemiah into doing something wrong. And he managed to get one of the other priests to set up a hotel room for him in the temple. Obviously, he had a lot of pull, and obviously, there was corruption among the priesthood. So everything is not as ducky as, as we thought. So Nehemiah took some quick action, and he takes everything of Tobiah's, and he throws it out, just like throws it out on the curb, and then he has the priest come in and purify it and put all the things back that are supposed to happen. And uh, in chapter 13, verse 8, I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified and had the articles of the house of God restored there, along with the grain offerings and the frankincense. So in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, no Ammonite or Moabite should be in the assemblies of God, and the people follow it. In verse 7, Eliashib had allowed Tobiah to have a house. Nehemiah leaves, and everything goes, the first failure takes place. So when Nehemiah returned, he not only found, he found Tobiah living in one of the storerooms, but that's because all the storerooms were empty. <laughs> that's a problem. 
That's where the Levites get their food. That's where they store their stuff. In other words, they're neglecting the temple. There's a second failure. They neglected the house of God that they promised not to neglect. And Nehemiah actually uses their own words against them. Uh, Nehemiah 13, verses 10 through 13. I also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to his own field. Therefore, I rebuked the officials, asking, why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and singers together and stationed them at their posts. Then all Judah brought together, brought a tenth of the grain, new wine, fresh oil into the storehouses. And I appointed treasurers over the storehouses, the priests uh, Shelemiah and the scribe Zadok and Padiah, the Levites, with Hanan, the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, to assist them, because they were considered trustworthy and they were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues. Um, can I just throw a side note in here? There was corruption in the priesthood, but there were also those that were faithful, and there were those that were trustworthy. And I think we need to be careful that even though sometimes we can look at certain organizations and think and see bad examples or see corruption, that we shouldn't just assume that everybody is that way, um, and we shouldn't just characterize and group everybody into that type of pool. Um, so there were good uh, Levites and good priests as well. But this was their second failure. They neglected the house of God that they promised not to neglect. In uh, chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, the people imposed commands on themselves. They took a vow. They said, we won't neglect the temple or the first fruits, and providing for the Levites. And in chapter 10, verse 34, they said they'd bring wood. Verses 35 and 37, they'd bring the first fruits. In 37, they'd bring a tenth for the Levites, which goes into the storerooms. And in chapter 10, verse 39, they said, we will not neglect the house of our God. And yet we just read in verse 11, Nehemiah says, why have you neglected the house of our God? Nehemiah is purposely bringing the exact phrase into chapter 13 that was used in chapter 10 to get us to go back to that passage and say, this is what they vowed, and they failed. We started chapter 13 with, we'll separate, and then we didn't separate. And we continue in chapter 13 with, we're neglecting the house of God, but you go back to chapter 10, and they said, oh, but we will not neglect the house of God. And then Nehemiah just throws out a random prayer, it seems. We call these the remember me prayers. Again, they're kind of not something we often would pray. I can't say that I sat down and said, God, remember me for this. Um, I don't know. It just doesn't seem, does that seem like odd to any of you? Like, how many of you have prayed a prayer like that and said, God, remember me for, for what I've done? Yeah, it's just not something that's common for us. But apparently it was in their day. And Nehemiah um, actually has this remember me prayer. And, and in each of these sections, this is one section, there's two more sections of failure. They end with a remember me prayer or a remembrance prayer. Not always remember me, but a remembrance prayer. Nehemiah 13, 14. Remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love that I have done for the house of my God and for its service. In other words, God, please don't let their actions undo the things that I have done. It's kind of like, don't lump me in with that lot. Realize what I've done, and if you're going to punish them, please, please consider the fact that I've tried. It might seem weird, but as a leader, you kind of understand it don't you? As a leader, you feel responsible for the actions of the people you lead. 
I mean, if, if you lead and people do the right thing, good for them. If you lead and people do the wrong thing, bad for me. I'm the leader. So you, you kind of get that concept. But in this case, Nehemiah uses some legal jargon to say, God, don't, don't hold me responsible for their actions. As a leader, I showed them what's right. I set up what's right. And they chose to do wrong. So please don't forget what I've done. Remember what I've done. And don't hold me in the same responsible pool as the failure of the, of the rest of the people. Their third failure was that they profaned the Sabbath. And you're like, what does that mean? I mean, it's just not common phraseology for us, profane the Sabbath. How about this? They ignored God's command to rest on the seventh day. That hit home a little bit better than profane the Sabbath. Profane the Sabbath sounds like something that should be on a plaque or something in a, in a temple. Um, but it doesn't sound like something we would just say on a normal basis. But they chose not to just ignore God's command to rest on the Sabbath day. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 15. And at that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and they were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people in Ju of Judah in Jerusalem. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all this disaster on us and on the city? And now you're rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath? The people were buying food from merchants on the Sabbath. They were working on the Sabbath. And both of those violated the law of Moses. But the narrator doesn't want us just to understand that they're violating the law of Moses. He's using the same terminology to take us back again to chapter 10, violating their own vow. In chapter 10, verse 31, the people said this, when surrounding people bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will cancel every debt. The same phrase. They said, we won't buy from merchants that come in and try to sell on the Sabbath day. And then in Nehemiah 13, we read that merchants were coming in and they were buying from those merchants on the Sabbath day. There's meant to be this hyperlink back to chapter 10 again. A total reversal of their covenant. So again, Nehemiah took quick action. He locked the doors and threatened military force against any merchants who would continue to show up at the door. You keep showing up, I'm going to use force, I'm going to get rid of you. And they finally stopped showing up. And then in verse 22, another remember me prayer. Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. In other words, please don't judge me for what they've done. <laughs> Again, a plea of innocence on his behalf. And then we hit verse 23. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and the, or the language of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of the men, and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for yourselves, for your sons or yourselves. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? There was not a king like him among the many nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then 
should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of the Most High Priest Eliashib, had become son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember Sanballat? He was the Tobias' partner in crime. They're marrying in with him. It's like, wait a minute. A son of a high priest is marrying into Sanballat's family? Whoa. I mean, the corruption really goes deep here. And we don't know what it was. You know, maybe, maybe it was a power grab by the priest. Maybe it was just part of that in, uh, a political arrangement to try to bring peace between their people. Maybe it was true love. We don't know, but it shouldn't have happened. That's the only thing we really do know. But I love verse 25. Isn't verse 25 fun? Yes, I knew David liked that verse too. Nehemiah rebukes them. He cursed them. He beat some of them, and he pulled out their hair. I mean, this guy's like so passionate. I mean, he's like on a tirade here. Like, what is wrong with you people? Don't you get it? Don't you see what you're doing? So he's like totally flipping out on them. Now, I'm not saying that's good policy for the modern church. Okay, so I want to be clear on that. I don't think that church discipline should include us pounding on you and pulling out your hair. But I do love the passion that Nehemiah has here, that he's willing to confront that way. And again, the words in verse 25 are meant to echo back and to hyperlink back to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 30 the people vowed this, we will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters for wives as wives for our sons. He's taking them right back to that vow that they made in chapter 10. And then he has another remembrance prayer. And the prayer changes here. This time, Nia asks God to remember the priests and hold them accountable for what they've done. As spiritual leaders, the priests should be held to a higher level of accountability. Because as a priest, their job was to live in such a way that other people could imitate them and to be an example to the people. So Nehemiah took action, purified the priests, and got them back on track. And the last prayer, and the last verse of the book ends in a prayer, and it's the last prayer of the book, and it's Nehemiah 13, 31. Remember me, my God, with favor. I love this book. Um, Nehemiah, it's got layers. It's like a good dessert. There's just a bunch of amazing layers, and when you put them all together, they're just, um, oh, it's just incredible. One layer is that Nehemiah is a historical book to show the restoration of the city's walls after the exile, and that's a legitimate layer. It's a historical narrative of the people coming back and rebuilding their city. On another layer, it's a, it's a book about the restoration of a people, of the Jews being restored back to the people of God and being reconnected with their God. On another layer, it's a book about the way God uses people, all of his people, whether it's leaders like Nehemiah or whether it's teachers like Ezra or whether it's... Um, Workers in the temple, or we'll call them uh, ministry workers, who are going around and doing the work of God and helping other people follow God, or whether it's the people who are doing the work of God in their own neighborhoods. It's a book about God using all of his people to accomplish his work and to show his glory in this world. But there's another layer 
in the book of Nehemiah that really kind of overlaps with the big picture of Scripture, with the grand narrative of the Bible. The commitment and then abandonment of the people of God to their God. There's a theme of people wanting to do what is right and even making a commitment to do so, and then doing exactly the opposite of what they promised. This theme is very specifically pointed out by Nehemiah in this last chapter of the book. There were three vows that they made, and then one additional action that showed their allegiance to God, and every one of them was broken. Every one of them was broken. I want us to look at these together, because I want you to understand that the author is trying to make a point here to help us understand not just the nation, but ourselves. There's the vows. They start in, I'm going to put them in the order in which they made the vows. We will not intermarry. We will honor the Sabbath. We will not neglect the temple. And we'll separate the foreigners. We'll separate from Ammon. Those, that's the order. So you have three vows in chapter 10, and in chapter 13, one action that took place where they heard the word, and they responded, and they separated the foreigners from among them. You get to chapter 13, and it's the exact opposite order, almost like you're peeling back the layers of the promises. They started with this promise, and they added this promise, and they added this promise, and they added this promise, and now, as they're failing, it's like peeling back the layers to the point where they're back where they were before they ever even made the promises. Check it out. Separation was ignored. The temple was neglected. The Sabbath was profaned and they were married to foreigners. He goes in the exact opposite order as he brings them up. And he uses the exact words to link back. He's trying to show that all the things that they said they were going to do, they failed on every one of them. Apparently, exile was not lesson enough to force them to fear God. As a matter of fact, we know that they're going to continue to struggle with these things because these specific things are also mentioned by the, the, the Italian prophet Malachi, Malachi, right? We started our series in the prophets in the book of Malachi, and he addressed some of these same things, their marriage issues, um, the, the, what their, their worship issues. The people's hearts hadn't changed. So if chapter 13 undoes everything that was in chapter 10, I think the only hope is really to go back to chapter 9. So what do you mean by that? Chapter 9 is the history of the Jews in the form of a prayer. And it shows the failure of the Jews over and over again. But even more than that, it shows God's great compassion over and over again. It's their prayer of confession, and it's the only solution is to loop back to confession. It's funny, we had two testimonies this morning, and Eric kind of shared about this idea of repenting, and, and, you know, you try, you live, you fail, you go back, and, you know, hearing those testimonies, you hear about people doing this. We all do that, don't we? And that's the point. There's this loop. You confess, you repent, you live for God, you fail, you repeat. That loop sound familiar to you guys? Right? It's the human condition. It's the reason we needed a Messiah, an anointed one, 
one appointed by God who could live a perfect life because we can't. My condition and yours is no different than Israel's. We make promises to God, and we can't keep them completely, so we will fail at times. We have good days and we have bad. We have days where we're an example to the people around us, and they can see the glory of God in us. And then there's also days where we give God a black eye. We are the people of God whom he called to take his image to the world, to point people back to him. And we live in a charred ruin of a broken world. Just like the Jews did. Chapters 9 through 13 show us a pattern of humanity to follow and to fail, to honor and to neglect, to promise and to backslide. But more importantly than the human condition, we also see in these chapters the amazing compassion of God. The compassion of God that allowed them and us to renew and restart and not get wiped out. It's the compassion of God that sent Jesus, the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15 in the very beginning of our scriptures with the fall, to come and undo the wrongs that we've done, and to pay for our sins. It's the compassion of God that we experience today through the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins so that we can stand before God unashamed. Thank God for his compassion. And the book of Nehemiah shows God's compassion in keeping a remnant alive. He didn't wipe them out. And he had an opportunity to, for sure, a couple times. He didn't wipe them out. He kept them there. He allowed them to not only live through the exile, but return to the city and have everything rebuilt at the expense of the king and of the surrounding peoples, to have their temple back, to have their their city back. That's the compassion of God. So I want us to go back. David refused to to read chapter 9 because it was going to take 12 minutes. So I'm going to come back and read part of chapter 9, but only about eight minutes of it. Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 31. And I want you to listen to the story of Israel. And I want you to catch two things. I want you to, as we're reading through this, I want you to think about how this reflects upon us as the people of God. You and me today and our relationship with him. And I want you to see how many times and in how many ways you can find the compassion of God in this prayer. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. You, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and all the stars of heaven worship you. You, Yahweh, are the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and changed his name to Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites to give to his descendants. You have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the oppression of our ancestors in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaohs, all his officials, and all the people of the land, for you knew how arrogantly they had treated our ancestors. You made a name for yourself that endures to this day. 
You divided the sea before them, and they crossed through it on dry ground. You hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone in a raging water. You led them with a pillar of cloud by day and with a pillar of fire by night to illuminate the way they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them impartial ordinances, reliable instructions, and good statutes and commands. You revealed your holy Sabbath to them and gave them commands, statutes, and instructions through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for their hunger, and you brought them water from the rock for their thirst. You told them to go into the, and possess the land you swore to, gave them, to give them. But our ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a forgiving God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and you did not abandon them. Even after they had cast an image of a calf for themselves and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, and they had committed terrible blasphemies, you did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. During the day, the pillar of cloud never turned away from them, guiding them on their journey. During the night, the pillar of fire illuminated the way they should go. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness 40 years, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and established boundaries for them. They took possession of the land of King Sihon and of Heshbon, in the land of King Og of Bashan, you multiplied their descendants like the stars of the sky and brought them to the land you told their ancestors to go in and possess. So their descendants went in and possessed the land. You subdued the Canaanites who inhabited the land before them and handed the kings and the surrounding peoples over to them to do as they pleased with them. They captured fortified cities and fertile land and took possession of well-supplied houses, cisterns cut out of rock, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate and were filled, became prosperous and delighted in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. Oh, they committed terrible blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. And in their distress, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven. And in your abundant compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the power of their enemies. But as soon as they had relief, they again did what was evil in your sight. So you abandoned them to the power of their enemies who dominated them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and rescued them many times in your compassion. You warned them to turn back to your law, but they acted arrogantly and would not obey your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, which a person will live by if he does them. They stubbornly resisted, stiffed their, stiffened their necks, and would not obey. But you were patient with them for many years, and your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Did you catch how many times that phrase comes up? 
you are a gracious and compassionate God. Whether they just ignored God's word or killed the prophets, it didn't matter how grievous the crime, God was a gracious and compassionate God. I want to ask you this morning, how often do we reflect on how compassionate God is toward us? Not just that he would redeem us from our own sinfulness or that he would adopt us into his family, but the compassion he continues to show to continue to forgive and to correct and to rebuke and to encourage and to instruct and to lead and to provide. One of the lessons Nehemiah wants us to learn, one of the layers of this book and of the prophets as a whole is how compassionate our God really is. When Moses, Moses was referred to obviously quite a bit, as was the wilderness wandering in this prayer of confession. Um, When Moses, who had failed, went to meet God on the mountain, God revealed himself to Moses. And God could have said anything he wanted. He could have said, listen, let me tell you about how smart I am and how I know everything. Let me tell you about how powerful I am and how I control the universe. Let me tell you about the things that I do that you cannot even comprehend. He could have said any of those things to Moses. And yet, when Moses was on that mountain in Exodus 34, verse 6, there's one thing that God wanted Moses to know, first and foremost, as he met with him. Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. You and I are broken humans with broken promises, living in a broken creation. Through the compassion of God, we have restored fellowship and communion with him because of what Christ has done. The Bible says that God's love was so great for us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet in rebellion, while we were the people who were just ignoring his word and just after making promises, doing whatever we wanted, he chose to have his son die for us while we were still in rebellion. Thank God for his compassion, and may his love and his compassion create a desire in us to live faithfully for him. You would think that the Jews, after being handpicked, selected, protected, chosen by God, brought into the promised land, provided for over and over and over again, And when they rebelled, chastened and brought discipline upon them, and then bringing them back to their their home, back to their city, back to them, you would think and hope that that would be enough for them to finally say, yes, we'll follow God. My hope today is that we would think of our own journey with God and the promises we make that sometimes we fail to keep 
the commitments that we make that sometimes we're not so good at, the times where we choose to put our place in, uh, to make ourselves out to be God instead of allowing God to have rule in our lives. And just ask the same probing question and thought you would think after all God has done for us, that we would be faithful to live for him and not to turn our backs on him. And it's my prayer that we would live that way today. Father, thank you for your compassion, for your goodness. Thank you for the lesson of scripture that we are a broken people, that we need a savior, that you are a compassionate God, that you've provided for us what we need for salvation and for relationship with you. Father, forgive us for the times that we neglect you or go back on our promises to you and help us to live in such a way that we reflect your compassion to the world around us, that we reflect your love and your glory. Father, help us to live as your people, as your children, in a way that would make you proud, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We uh, want to thank you for sticking with us through Nehemiah and through the, um, I like to say through the prophets, but we're going to continue a little bit longer in the prophets, only because, because, because yeah, we have to cover this one other prophet that doesn't have his own book that we really have to cover. And so we're going to do a flashback. So it'll be like a throwback month or whatever. We're going to go back to Elijah um, for a couple weeks. David wants to take us through Elijah. And then from there, we're going to summarize our Old Testament, the prophets, and the Old Testament narrative. And Lord willing, uh, by mid-July, we'll be diving into the Gospel of Matthew. So you're welcome to read about Elijah over the next week. Um, and then in preparation for uh, next month, uh, start reading through the, the Gospels. Um, Start with Matthew, if that's what we'll be going through, and then uh, read through the other ones if you'd like to. And remember, if you have any uh, biblical objections to the Bylers becoming members, uh, submit those in writing uh, to either David or I. And that's all that we have for you. God bless you. Have a great day.